0: Hello Space Watchers, welcome back to a new episode of Space Café Radio. I'm Emma Gatti, contributing editor at Space Watch Global, and today we're going to round up the four weeks of the AMAD-20 mission. This is the fourth episode of our coverage of the amadi 20 mission, which started on the 4th of October. amadi 20 is a Mars analog simulation based in the Negev Desert in Israel. The mission is managed by the Austrian Space Forum and hosted by the Israeli Space Agency. Our guest today is Dr. Ganot Gromer, the director of the Austrian Space Forum and mission lead for Amadi 20. Ganot, welcome to Space Cafe Radio and thank you for joining us today. How are you?
1: Hello and thanks for the invitation. I'm feeling great.
0: Fantastic. So we are almost at the end of the AMAD20 mission. How is it gone?
1: We have a very high workload, lots of sand, obviously, lots of scientific data keep pouring in. So it's very intense at the moment. There's nothing more magic than an ongoing mission. Four years of planning, 210 researchers from more than 25 countries. This is really a big thing. I think you could even call it the biggest and most complex Mars simulation this year worldwide. So
0: I'm just feeling really honored to be here with you. I want to ask you something. You said in a previous interview that one of the goals was to make mistakes. How many mistakes were made? And will you be able to correct <laughs> them? Yeah,
1: we don't start counting them. But you're totally right. One of the underlying philosophies we have in our organization is fail fast, fail cheap, have a steep learning curve. So every mistake we make here on Earth during our missions hopefully won't happen on Mars uh, in 20 to 30 years from now. Because as you can imagine, Mars is up to 280 million kilometers away and there's more than a thousand things that could go wrong and many of those might end catastrophic. So everything that goes wrong here on Earth, we can still correct. And this is what we're doing. It's all about learning to crawl before you learn to walk.
0: You followed the astronauts during three weeks of isolation, monitoring their bodies and their minds. What did you learn from the astronauts' body responses? Any medical surprise? As it's an ongoing
1: mission, the data are still coming in. So whatever I say is very preliminary and just the first quick look uh, in the, the data sets we're having. But already now we're having a lot of. Not surprises, but stunning things where I thought, oh, wow, that's something we didn't expect in that way. For instance, uh, we are measuring the exact location of the astronauts in the station, the habitat, down to better than 30 centimeters resolution, which gives us a fantastic new way to look into where they aggregate, congregate throughout the day, which spots they're using, under what type of usage patterns, more free time versus more work-related activities. And so we can even track the relationship in between the astronauts saying, who is avoiding whom? And we can also correlate this with the complementary, more standardized tests we're doing from a psychological perspective. So this allows us to actually have an idea of how to build a space station in a more efficient way. I can already tell you now, there's a lot of things we can we can learn from this already. Because,
0: of course, that people are going to leave there for a long period of time. So you need to understand the mm-hmm. rhythm and the preferences.
1: Absolutely. We have been putting a lot of effort into not only organizing this mission, but also choosing the right people. We are, to my knowledge, the only group worldwide which is having a standardized standing core of analog astronauts. We have 13 flight qualified within the active flight status right now. And from those, we choose the best six people in this case. And the others are already either working on other projects or will be selected for for other missions. And we have been checking literally a few hundred of parameters, both physiological but also psychologically, to either select out any pathological traits, but also select in anything that is particularly desirable uh, in the crew. And
0: this leads me to the next question. Did you find some odd, peculiar… or maybe just unexpected psychological reaction in the past three weeks among the crew? So far, not
1: really, because the, the selection was, uh, unfortunately, other the quotation marks so welled up that there's not a single trait of conflict within the crew we are realizing. However, some people might be familiar with the expression of the third quarter phenomenon that when you are Halfway through a mission or a vacation, it's the same phenomenon, or halfway through a marriage or so, that there are challenges arising with respect to the us versus them feeling. That means you have the crew on Mars slash in the simulation and the other team are the mission supports in Austria. And the crew thinks, oh my gosh, you have no clue what we're going through physically, mentally, all the isolation, a little sleep quality and so on. Versus the mission support and saying, you're going to have the time of your life You're Why don't you enjoy yourself? This is so, and then we're here for you. We're all, we're doing everything that we can to support you. And this creates a challenge where you realize that like in any you know, social relationships in every lives, that these type of situations become a magnifying glass for conflicts. Just think of a sailing voyage together with your husband or so. Huh? It's also a situation where you are forced to live together on, on tight spaces. And this magnifies challenges or problems you might have overlooked previously. And we see already the emergency as well. So one of the impressions I have is no matter how well you select and how, matter how well you train the people, you will still not fully be immune to this three-quarter problem. Of course,
0: because you are, we are human in the end. So you can be as perfect as you want selecting the crew, but still you, they will have human reaction. Like they're eating powder. As an Italian, I'm worried about that. I'm worried for that. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, 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 It's a little bit better actually. We had 256 pages of nutrition oh, okay. plan for the device from uh, the University of Applied Science for Health Services in Upper Austria. They're eating astonishing good food, but of course, only things that are you know, storable for more than a year. So it has been some time since they saw a fresh apple. Lot.
0: Let's uh, let's look at the future. How far are we from a crewed mission on the Red Planet?
1: I would say that we can safely say that within the next twenty. 30 years, we are very Fantastic. likely to see a human race to Mars. And and that also means that the very first human to walk on Mars is already born. and might be just going to an elementary school in Padua or in Beijing or in New York, who knows? And so we might not be the generation who, who is actually flying to Mars, but it's the one that is the shipbuilder generation. So... Christopher Columbus would have gotten nowhere without the shipbuilders, but no one else shipbuilders, yeah? And so when we break for new oceans and break for new worlds, we need both the astronauts, but also a huge uh, support system which makes sure they can have a safe and scientifically efficient mission. This
0: is very interesting because I think one of the most important, precious meaning that we need to communicate through space exploration is that it's a huge effort that includes so many parts. It includes the human part, the tech part, Absolutely. the science part, Everything. And what does the yeah. Amandy twenty mean for the future of Mars exploration?
1: It's a subset of knowledge we're acquiring here. It's both about testing technologies, workflows, software algorithms, scientific algorithms like when to when to place which instrument at which location, for what reason, how to process data. But it's also about the grand scheme of adding the human element to a Mars mission. We have seen this with robotic missions over and over again that we have one rover, all the instruments on board, and wherever the planet for moves all the instruments go but if you are evolving into several rovers air vehicles astronauts in the field a station and orbiters, and so on the choices are dramatically increasing what you can do and there's a one thing we learned now those 30 expeditions so far already i can tell you it's a short let's is it's very easy to waste the most precious resource in even space flight and that's the astronaut time if you don't plan carefully and and so it's we are there for the zeros and the ones of the instruments we're sending there and being utilized by humans. And yes, we are also there to to do this in a safe and efficient manner. But at the end of the day, and this is something we try to build into the DNA of our missions, is there's also the human aspect to it. There's a famous quote from I don't know if you know the the TV movie Contact, the Carl Sagan book. Yes, with, there's a key scene in the movie I keep telling myself over and over again. And that's when Jodie Foster, the protagonist, says, oh my gosh, we shouldn't have sent an engineer. We should have sent an, a poet. And this is something where I insist that this is the very, one of the most important reasons to send humans. Because only humans can tell what it's like there to feel the wind and to taste the sense.
0: Gannot, this is very precious also from a pure philosophical point of view. I think we are on a crossroad where we have to understand that we have to put together human resources, social resources, tech resources all together to break the next front tree. So this is also a very interesting message for the future of science that it gets beyond maybe space exploration itself. I want to ask you a political question. We know that right. there is uh, the new and just announced Austrian Space Strategy and I want to know how the mm-hmm. strategy fits within the picture that you just painted.
1: Unfortunately, there's not a lot of overlap. Uh, the reason being that the strategy is mainly focused, of course, on applications. I think there are some strengths in this. For instance, having a, a green fingerprint in terms of uh, monitoring climate change and actually making sure that spaceflight also contributes uh, to preserving our planet as well. Things that is very important. It also contains some notions about new space, although not in the way like we would have suggested it to be, there's actually, unfortunately, one topic that is really missing, and that is exploration, and that is a human spaceflight all. And I don't really understand why. The process itself did never allow for human spaceflight to be included in a meaningful way. There was an online consultancy process, but that didn't really materialize, at least from the people we've been talking to, who have been submitting their inputs to the space strategy. But if you compare it with other countries, several countries have been doing the national space strategy recently, Hungary, for instance, um, has specifically articulated they want to have a Hungarian astronaut within the next three years, I think, to the International Space Station. Now, that's a statement. And this is not so much about, yes, we'd like to work on a better gender balance in the field. Yes, that's important, that's necessary. So, as long as it don't put numbers to it and you cannot measure us, it, it's always a question of how do you phrase it? How do you, we consider it that, that like 80% of the space strategy are really fulfilled now because, yes, longer you wait, the better the gender balance will get as well. So what I'm claiming is that there, at this day called the process, uh, did not fully reflect the needs of the industry, unfortunately. And I'm not sure there's any way to change this. The question will be how is it actually implemented at the end of the day. But I think we should, not only in Austria, but also in other space strategy, have a little bit of boldness reserved for those steps that will one day take us far beyond Earth orbit. And we say to Austria, we were such a small country, so we cannot afford those things. I don't think it's a question of the money. It's more about the question of the vision and involving the right stakeholders. And I think there's some potential for improvement of that.
0: Gannot, we are risk adverse in Europe. So we struggle a lot to, to yes. be bold. Yes, I think true. this is a common problem among European I, countries.
1: Yes, yes. Where are the European space access? And I can tell you so many stories, particularly from Austria, where we had very innovative bright. Minds coming to funding agents and said, Here's the idea of what to build rockets in Europe. And there's, oh my God, you can't do it. Laughed out of the room, basically. And now they're having a Series B running funding rounds with 50 mega euros in, in Munich now, led by an Austrian CEO, by the way, or other companies as well. And I said, This is a sad thing because we could have had those companies also in Austria. The same for Spider, for instance, a uh, well known satellite constellation operator, also operated by, by an Austrian CEO, Peter Platzer. We actually tried several times to come to Austria and, and never uh, was able to take it a foothold. And so I think we have a particular talent of offering challenges that are not necessary to those people. And I would love to see this evolving. We And
0: for what, for a country, is a possibility or an opportunity for us is a risk. So we can be scared, I think. But let's conclude with a look Absolutely. at the international geopolitical context, which in space industry is as important as the tech context. How do the Austrian ambitions for space go along with with NASA, for example, or with the international plans of future explorations? In this moment, I'm thinking in particular to Artemis and the recently announced Chinese-Russian international moon base.
1: Yes, I I think our strongest muscle we have... Within Austria, is only partially Austrian, that's European Space Agency. I think if you compare ESA with NASA, for instance, I think the efficiency in terms of bang for the bucks, in terms of, of economic efficiency and scientific efficiency, is astounding. And I think within the very complex framework ESA has to operate with, because it's a supranational uh, organization that is not that easy to navigate like NASA as a national uh, organization... That's really impressive. I think Josef Aschbach is doing a fantastic job, and his predecessors have been doing a fantastic job in in navigating ESA in very difficult times and have a surprisingly stable budget. Also because they were able to demonstrate the benefit of ESA work for the European citizens. As long as we're able to make people aware that space is for everyone and that space is producing a tangible benefit for everyday lives, and I'm not only talking about the spin-offs here, I think we're in a good way. We just need to make sure that they're also aware that a small fraction of these expenditures should be spent on high risk projects like space exploration with human spaceflights to Mars, for instance, because these are the the sharpening stones of our strategies, technologies, education systems that other technologies and Earth observation can also benefit from. The main challenge of getting humans to Mars is not building a big rocket ship. It's not about precision landing. It's not so much about building the best space possible. It's about making the people long for the oceans again.
0: Hmm, I get you. It's, uh, it's more of a mindset. Absolutely, yeah. a <laughs> famous quote,
1: I would like to conclude with this part, from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the, the author of Le Petit Little Prince. And he said, when you want to build a ship, do not only teach the people how to put together the planks of wood, but make them long for the ocean.
0: Thank you very much, Gannot, for giving us such a fantastic perspective on what the future holds for Mars Human Missions. I wish you good luck with any future mission and I really hope I will be able to talk to you again. This has been enlightening. This is the end of our interview, but we will be back with our final episode where we we talk with one of the analog astronauts. This is all from Space Cafe Radio. Till next time. Bye.